Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We start potentially with history on Bloomberg Surveillance. Friday, April 27th, 2018 may well go down as a day for the history textbooks in decades to come. North Korean leader Kim Jong-un and South Korean President Moon Jae-in agreeing to finally end a seven-decade war and pursue the complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. Peter Pei, Seoul Bureau Chief, joins us now from Seoul on the story with the North and the South. Peter, talk to me about the significance of the day's events so far. Well, uh, historically very significant. Uh, this is the first time that a North Korean leader stepped over to the South. Um, a lot of very visually entertaining uh, political backdrop. Uh, they hugged um, and uh, they met. They had, uh, they're actually having dinner right now. I mean, extraordinary uh, visions of, uh, you know, basically almost like there was, there was no hostilities or war going on here. However, um, the statements that or the any kind of agreement that they reached today was really more uh, saying that they were aiming to. I mean, there was no, you know, no actual agreement that would, um, you know, put in place any kind of action. Uh, so there's um, a lot of pomp and circumstance today as to what that would entail going forward. Um, you know, there's a lot of analysts who are not sure. Uh, and um, many are saying, you know, it's what it remains to be seen. Peter, a declaration of peace quite clearly very different to creating something a lot more sustainable for, for years to come. Can we talk about the steps to come, the steps that might be laid out that need to be taken over the, the coming months and, and coming years as well, Peter? Yes, and, and that's a very good question because you know, yes, they said we are, you know, we we're, we're, you know, we're aiming for peace on the peninsula. Well, uh, what does that mean? I mean, um, it's not a peace treaty. Uh, that can be only signed by the the, the countries that um, actually uh, reached the armistice in 1953, and that's basically China, U.S., uh, and North Korea. It excludes South Korea, really. Uh, so technically and legally, uh, there is no peace treaty, or you know, South Korea cannot reach a peace treaty with North. So exactly what that means technically, uh, you know, there's um, in some ways the the, the summit uh, with Trump. Um, probably will be more substantive and and more, um, uh, you know, the impact from that will probably be greater. Peter, the, uh, the President of the United States this morning saying the Korean War is to end. And in many ways, the President of the United States de- deserves a lot of credit for what we're seeing on TV screens around the world today. And I'm just wondering where the most pressure has come from, Peter. Um, is the most pressure coming from the United States? Is that what got us here today? Or does China have a massive role to play as well? Uh, well, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 I think Trump can argue that he had a lot to do it in the sense of the maximum pressure that he put on North Korea, particularly with the sanctions and such. But, you know, he couldn't have really done that without the help of China. I mean, China was the lifeline to North Korea. And when they started um, putting the screws on the economy there, clearly that uh, that uh, moved the needle um, in North Korea. Uh, so can Trump take all the credit? Probably not, um, but he can take a large of that. Yeah. Peter Pay, it's fantastic to get your insight from Seoul. 
in South Korea on a historic day um, for both the North and the South. Our Seoul Bureau Chief joining us uh, from South Korea. Bill Rhodes with us this morning, who has decades of experience here and really has a working relationship with a leader of South Korea. Who is Mr. Moon, Bill Rhodes? Well, he has been uh, an active politician and, uh, uh, for quite a long time. I got to know him when he was chief of staff of President No, who you will remember was the one who last met with the North, with the North Koreans. 2007. Exact, exactly. And so he was very much involved in that. I got to, to know him because I was helping from the private sector side uh, put together the Chorus FTA, the free trade agreement, and uh, worked with him uh, in various uh, meetings all over Korea, including in several in the Blue House, uh, where he ran these meetings. He's, a de- as I said on TV, which you read just a few minutes ago, he has been dedicated to this sunshine policy, which was fir- first put forth by President Kim Dae-jong, when he came into power, and that was when I restructured the debt. So you have a man dedicated to, to trying to uh, get a, a, a peace treaty uh, with the North, and more than that, talking about reunification. And now, uh, since you had the advancement uh, in nuclear and missile technology right. in the North, uh, trying to see if you can denuclearize the whole peninsula. What will the streets of Korea debate in tomorrow morning's papers? Do they debate... The economy? Do they debate the fear? Do they go for an historical take? What What would you suggest will be the emotion of people within Korea one and two and three days on? Well, I think it'll be positive uh, at the outset, but there's also going to be uh, a lot of doubts given the history of discussions between the North and the South. And particularly since Kim, uh, Kim Jong-un talks all of the time about following his grandfather, Kim Il-sung, who wanted to unite the peninsula, but under communist rule. So I think you're going to have a number of people happy that uh, you have the end, the formal end of uh, the Korean War and the talk of denuclearization, uh, but a lot of skepticism, too, as to how this could happen and what sort of verification process you will have in. The Chinese here are critical. People tend to forget that if it were for the Chinese uh, on the oil sanctions— uh, you you might not have had Kim Jong Un uh, actually coming to the table, Bill. For the for the South Koreans and and for many people in the North, it will be um, a, a serious day of hope for them um, as these two countries agree to resume the reunions for for separate families as well. Just moving forward from here, and maybe I'm getting a few years ahead of myself, but I'm really thinking about sphere of influence. Um, North Korea and, and the Chinese. There's always been this worry that the North could fall into the sphere of the influence of the United States if we had a reunion with um, with South Korea. How are you thinking about that at the moment? Which sphere of influence would the North fall into if we do get sustainable peace between the, the North and South? Is it China or is it the United States? Well, I think it's a very interesting and key question because I think that Kim Jong-un is going to look to his, his grandfather's policies, which is to play one off against the other. He did a masterful job of playing off Mao, Stalin, and Stalin's successors. And uh, I think that's where he's going to be. Uh, he doesn't want to always be a captive of China, which he, ha- which he is today. Uh, he wants to be able to broaden that out and gain more independence. But it's going to be the key issue. 
Uh, and Japan has a stake in this. And remember, Russia had a big stake. Russia was supplying uh, North Korea during the Korean War. It wasn't just China. China put the troops on. Yeah. But the uh, the Russians actually sent mm. pilots to pilot the MiGs. So you have all of this there. And then the Chinese are talking about reviving the six-party talks uh, going forward. So I think it's going to be a very yeah. interesting period. Bill Rhodes, thank you for coming in this one. I greatly appreciate it. William Rhodes with us formally. That was Citigroup, his book, Banker to the World, as well, and also a member of the Korea Society. Within all of the international relations of the day, there is that feeling of it's May, sell in May and go away. That's the first time I've said that in 2018, John Farrell, in charge of selling in May and going in uh, uh, May. Also in charge of his essay, (laughs) his acclaimed essay from five years ago, which is load the boat in May and uh, make capital gains is John Golub of Credit Suisse. Uh, you, it's got to kill you day-to-day, institutional and retail, when people throw out trite phrases like sell in May and go away. Uh, it, it makes me crazy every year. And then when you're actually... <laughs> well, you know, the funny thing is, if you actually go back and do the data analysis... Please. It actually, kinda, it actually has kind of worked over the last 20 years. And every single year for the last decade, I think that, that any investment strategy that you can sum up in, in a four-word four rhyme is a really dumb strategy... And, uh, you know, as annoying as it is, it, it, on average, it's kind of worked, though I don't think it will this year. I'm, I'm, I'm sticking to my guns. Can we, to, well, go ahead, John. Can, Please can, we talk about, can we talk about the numbers that we've had, John? Because the earnings are just terrific. The tech numbers we've seen in the last week are absolutely solid. Why isn't the market responding to this? You know, it's, it's, it's frankly, it's not only perplexing, perplexing to me, <clears> but I'm talking to the biggest fund managers out there, and they're also kind of shrugging their shoulders and shaking their heads. Um, but we're seeing this will be the best earnings season in terms of percentage of companies beating um, ever. This will be the, wow. the biggest earnings season outside of the bounce you get right after recession ever. And yet the market is giving almost no benefit to companies when they're beating on revenues and, and earnings. And it's not like one sector or one weird thing. Um, 16 plus percent beats in industrials in the ninth year of a recovery cycle. Tech companies beating by way over 10 percent and not only beating, but they're raising their their outlook for the remainder of the year while they're doing it. So it's not yeah. just like the good news is behind us. And the market is shrugging on it. Well, you hit the number nine, the ninth year of the of the recovery. And I think a lot of people are just saying, thanks, Q1. Um, is this as good as it gets? They're looking out to 2019, 2020 and saying, maybe we're about to hit a bit of a cliff. What do you say back to that argument now, John? Well, I think it's I think that there's some validity in it. And I think that, that that's part of the, the issue. First of all, the earnings that we're seeing this quarter, we're going to see that all throughout 2018. Maybe it won't be this good, but it'll be pretty darn good. Um, if you look at 2019, though, there's not even a question. The earnings growth can't possibly stay at 20%. So we think you'll get 6 or 7%. And I'll tell you right now, I think 6 or 7% next year will be will be fine. Um, but people are, are thinking, what, how does the market respond to deceleration, not mm-hmm. bad news? And for some reason, they, they're, they're questioning that. With rates up, and you know, I don't know what the parlor game is going into next week's Fed meeting, folks. Look for our full coverage of the Fed meeting. That begins today, The Real Yield with John Farrow on Bloomberg uh, Television. And then we go to our Fed meeting on May 2nd. Looking forward to that on radio and television. 
okay, so we're going to have a Fed meeting and all that. Is cash now an asset? You know, it with if you can get 3% on a government bond and you can add some kind of a spread for a corporate uh, bond, um, it's 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 now becoming more competitive against equities than, it, than it's been in the past. And while companies have been returning capital in the form of, of buybacks, yeah. I think that they need to redirect that towards dividends in order to remain competitive. Not for everyone. An institutional investor doesn't care. But there are a lot of uh, investors who do care about that but yield. But if, if you just think, John, and, and what's in front of you on a dashboard at the moment, um, you've got a better yield at the front end in treasuries. Downside protection has got a lot more expensive over the last few months relative to where it was last year. And when you add all of these things up, you are being incentivized to de-risk somewhat, aren't you, at the beginning of this year? You know, I, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I think, and, and, and Jonathan, you asked a question just a moment ago, was how long does a cycle have to go? If you believe that this thing is going to, that the, that, that the next recession is a 2019 or 2020 event, then, then, then yeah, I think that the de-risking is an option. If you think that the, the business cycle is healthy, and I think that it is, corporate profits are good, employ, you know, jobs are being added, all these type of things, then I think it's just it's just too early to to yeah. jump on the sidelines. The market's gonna is gonna keep moving. I ahead guess the of reason you. I asked the question is just if you're in the treasury market, why take the additional duration risk to get a ten year with a pickup of fifty basis points over twos? And if you're thinking about taking additional credit risk, why would you do that? So it has kind of changed the calculation you need to make relative to where we were twelve months ago, John. Yeah, and I, and I I, I I wish I disagreed with you, but I, I don't. And I think that if we see. You know, right now, the difference between a two-year bond and a, and a 10-year bond is only 50 basis points. But if you look at what the futures market's telling us, the market has its own prediction mechanism, yeah. is that that's going to be to 25 or 30 basis points in a year from now. And you, you could very well ask the question is, why, why bother and tie your money up? And I think that the market is going to struggle with that issue more. And and you also credit spreads are really, really tight. So you get a little extra yield, but you're taking some default risk. I think right now it's still yeah. worth the. I, I think it's still worth it because I think that ultimately that, that money's good, but it's becoming a little harder. <clears throat> John Golub, thank you so much. With Credit Suisse this morning, John Golub on the equity markets wrapped around a lot of coverage of uh, this historic moment in Korea. I want to bring in Krishna Mamani, Oppenheimer Fund's Chief Investment Officer and Head of Fixed Income. Krishna, you and I have spoken so many times over the last couple of years about the bond market. Ten-year treasuries, yield of 3%. Is that still a buy for you? I, I think from a longer-term perspective, perspective, it is a buy. But uh, before that, I think it's probably going higher. Uh, to be, to be uh, sure here, uh, the, uh, the GDP number may be lower than last quarter, but it's better than expectations yep. and meaningfully better than expectations. And inflation pressures, as you, as, as you mentioned, inflationary pressures picking up. So that sort of forces the Fed's hand, and it is only going to strengthen in the second half of the year. So if there is hope for the economy and if there's hope for the bond market, the Fed would have to look at the temporary growth spurt as temporary. And if they don't, then we'll run into problems. John, nominal GDP, current GDP, 5.3% Q3, 5.3% Q4. And as you say correctly, John, they've been revised 14 times. And the first look here, Christian, this is important. It's only a slowdown to 4.3%. So I've got 
a compare and contrast to where we were a year ago, which is a Make America get, Again stick bigger on nominal GDP. Is that animal spirit out there? Is it tangible within investment plans? So there is a bit of animal spirits and there's a bit of uh, stimulus dollar being thrown into the economy. So uh, after the tax cuts, uh, the the people were excited about uh, the Trump economic policies, but the the, the tax cut got them even more yeah. uh, excited. And that's what we are going to see through. Uh, as I said, it's going to accelerate in the second yeah. second half of the year. And John, there's a line item here, government consumption federal consumption, national defense down sharply, and that's very fluctuating, non-defense. And then there's also government tax take from foreign British uh, citizens, which is one of the line items under GDP. <laughs> what are you up to? I mean, I mean, what do you think of American taxes, John? You just went through tax time here. It's incredibly difficult. <laughs> it's incredibly difficult. And I was told they were going to make it more simple, but it's really difficult. You have to talk about your foreign bank accounts and, and whether they had a, a certain amount over them, and then they want to look at that your pension abroad as well. Right. There's a real overreach outside of the United States. You don't have to show States. the Swiss bank accounts you have, John. No, they, that wouldn't, wouldn't that be lovely if, <laughs> if they existed, uh, Krishna? But I, I think for the overall uh, corporate sector, the uh, the lowering of tax rates is extraordinarily significant from an investment standpoint and from a an, uh, profitability standpoint. And we will see the effect of that. It may not be felt today, but uh, we will see the effect of that uh, in both uh, top-line growth and profitability and higher levels in the market down the road. So talk to me about your conviction trade right now, given the setup and the macro backdrop and the setup that we've had from corporate results through Q1 so far. We still like equities. We think equities, uh, at the end of the year, equities are going to be meaningfully higher than where they are right now. Uh, these volatile environments provide you an opportunity to add to that exposure. We also like emerging markets. Today, it doesn't feel like that, but I think from a, again, from if you have a reasonably long investment horizon, emerging market growth is pretty good. Inflation is peak in emerging markets, becoming less China dependent. All of that adds up to a really good environment for emerging market equities. Are you comfortable taking the FX risk in EM right now, given the resurgent dollar we've seen? Uh, yes. So I think if the dollar persists at its current uh, current level, the Fed would have to back down. There's really no, no way around that. And once that happens, we will see a resurgence in uh, emerging market FX. Uh, again, emerging market growth alone can be uh, will be enough to drive emerging market equities. Uh, FX is a bonus. Krishna Mamani, Oppenheimer Funds, Chief Investment Officer and Head of Fixed Income. Great to have you with us on the program. A decent GDP print relative to expectations coming at 2.3%. We were looking for 2%. That was the median estimate on Bloomberg. <clears throat> Tom, it is a drop down, a big drop down from the previous quarter, though, of 2.9%. And the backdrop to all of this is price pressure bubbling away. I'll go with that price pressure, but the first quarter, John, year after year, oh after yeah, year yeah, is a mystery. Absolutely, and and nobody can get yeah. their heads around. What it. happened in England? We got twenty seconds. What happened? Zero point one percent. Do we blame it on? Do we don't blame it? Blame it on baby Lewis? Do we? Uh, I think we do not. Um, the Louis, UK, the, is, Louis. It's Louis. It's oh, Louis. Oh, thank you, Krishna, Krishna. A member Thank of the you, Commonwealth. Thank you. Me to task. <laughs> We finished strong with a conversation on Bloomberg Surveillance with Richard Haas.
of the Council on Foreign Relations. Ambassador, I want to go back a few years to your book, The Reluctant Sheriff, The United States After the Cold War. Has Mr. Trump, has President Trump been the sheriff on the watch of these historic events? Well, in many ways, Mr. Trump is his own form of a reluctant sheriff because in many areas he's taken the United States out of various international uh, and regional institutions uh, and, and efforts to to promote you know, this or that outcome. You know, in the case of North Korea, uh, what we what we don't know still is a lot more than what we do know, Tom. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't know if what brought North Korea to where it seems to be, and I emphasize the word seems, are American threats. Chinese pressure, sanctions pressure, or possibly the fact that their nuclear missile programs reached a degree of maturity that gives them confidence and that they have no intention of, of giving up. When, when pros like you say negotiation, there's view A, view B, maybe in the case of Korea, view C, D, E, F, and G. How do you begin the process of negotiation with parties that have been so polarized over decades? Well, one, you begin warily, and two, you begin, I think, uh, realistically. And you, and I think it's actually, in some ways, your, your question goes to the heart of it. Do we try to resolve or solve once and for all all the questions of the peninsula, all the questions about North Korea, or do we set ourselves uh, more modest, but I would say still ambitious, uh, goals? So the idea that, for example, they would have to get rid of uh, every, not just every nuclear weapon, but all their nuclear material, all their ability to produce nuclear material, this would all have to be absolutely verified. The idea that that is our definition of success, I would suggest, may well set us up for failure. So I think what we've got to do is, first amongst ourselves, the United States, and then with South Korea, with Japan, ultimately China and Russia, we've got to come up with a a set of realistic uh, goals. And then we've also got to think very hard about what we're prepared to offer up in exchange for them. Richard Haas, if the photographs that we've seen of both uh, North and South Korean leaders were published during the Obama administration or the previous Bush administration, would the conversation about the administration's foreign policy be different than it is today? Uh, it's an interesting question. Uh, people might have been slightly more generous. Uh, I think with Mr. Trump, there's a degree of uh, skepticism. Also, there might have been more right-wing or conservative criticism uh, that they were uh, being too, what's the word, too unsuspecting. I don't know. I mean, the, the fact is that you know, Mr. Trump is, is radical or untraditional in his approaches. It may just be that in this case it is it is paid off. I would just simply say, uh, I hope so. But even he had said, even he said in one of his tweets today, and you know, positive things are happening, but it's too soon to tell, or only time will tell. And I think that's right. Uh, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't chill the champagne quite yet. Having said that, is this akin to Nixon and its opening and his opening with China? No, it only will become that if this really pans out. To compare this to, say, some of the big moments in Middle East diplomacy or U.S.-Chinese diplomacy or any diplomatic breakthrough, this has to essentially go from the level of rhetoric to the level of reality. So when we look back on this, that this could be seen as something truly historic and tr- transformational or transitional, or it could be seen as yet mm-hmm. another disappointment where policy didn't ultimately uh, back up the, the promise. Richard Haas with us of the Council on Foreign Relations. You have a spectacular explainer, Ambassador Haas, at CFR of the nuclear path over 20 and 30 years. 
Tell our audience what we most get wrong about nuclear Korea. I'm not sure I really quite follow, Tom. Well, do, 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 do we have a knowledge base of what North Korea oh. has? Do we have a, I mean, yeah. obviously we have a knowledge base of South Korea, but do we really sure. have intelligence on what's out there? In my experience, it's one of the toughest intelligence targets, and what we don't know is considerable, and that raises real problems for any negotiation, because just say North Korea were to agree to give up, quote-unquote, its nuclear weapons. Our ability to ever verify that it, in fact, had done that, I think, would be extremely uncertain. Well, they said they were going to give up materials or production capabilities. Again, this is the most closed society in many ways on the planet Earth. So it raises enormous obstacles for having confidence uh, that, that they're actually doing what they say they're doing, that they say they're doing. Can the president use what is taking place on the Korean Peninsula to his benefit when in his conversations with German Chancellor Angela Merkel vis-a-vis the Iran nuclear deal? It's an interesting question. I hadn't thought about it. Uh, maybe, and what he might say is this is this is proof or evidence about why we shouldn't compromise. So it may it may in fact lead him to get out of the Iran agreement, which he'll, which he says is is an imperfect agreement. It's a compromise. It wasn't demanding enough. And my my guess is, uh, I hadn't thought about it to your question, is my guess is that he will say this strengthens the argument for a more confrontational approach. You have a lot of experience as a negotiator. I'm wondering if you could offer your thoughts about the American, uh, the administration's negotiating position vis-a-vis not only the, the, the Germans and the French and the European Union, but just generally our negotiating posture and its potential for success for other trade agreements. Well, it's quite a confrontational one. Uh, essentially, we often come out of the box threatening unilateral action. And you know, on occasion, that might work and might get others to, to back down. On the other hand, the fact that it's so public and so confrontational seems to ignore that they, too, have, have politics. And you almost never get everything you ask for. So you, mm-hmm. you begin to create problems for yourself that you, you, you yourself have had backed down. Mm-hmm. And again, with allies in particular, I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend this approach simply because they're allies, and this is not a way we should be dealing with allies. It's just been hours of Secretary of State Pompeo. Richard Haas, is there going to be a difference in body language between Tillerson and Pompeo? Oh, absolutely. Uh, to... Pompeo begins the job with much more experience in government, much more knowledge of foreign policy, and an incomparably mm-hmm. better relationship with the President of the United States. Rex Tillerson had none of those. Rex, Rex, Rex Tillerson was something of a loner. Mike Pompeo is a real people yeah. person. You will see somebody much more comfortable in the job. Thank you, Ambassador. Thank you so much for the briefing on short notice. Richard Haas at the Council on Foreign Relations. And I really must say, folks, for your weekend briefing, you're, you, there's, there's, there's no downside to attending the Council on Foreign Relations uh, website. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.